Hey, my name is Matt Blois. I'm a reporter for FreightWaves and I cover the healthcare supply chain. Thanks for joining me today for the Cold Chain Summit. Today I'm talking with Alex Geitz. He's the VP of Services and Alliances at World Courier, which is part of the drug distributor Amerisource Bergen. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has put a really big spotlight on Cold Chain's role in, in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, I think when FDA gave the first COVID-19 vaccines emergency approval last year, they needed to be transported at these really extremely cold temperatures attracted a lot of attention. And since then, those temperature requirements have been relaxed a little bit, at least here in the United States. Uh, but temperature control is still one of the components that makes the vaccine rollout really quite complicated across uh, across the whole world, especially here in the U.S. We've been pretty lucky to see the cold chain work fairly well. Uh, but vaccine makers, and drug distributors, they still have to get those vaccine doses to the rest of the world, and cold chain is going to be really critical for that effort. Um, so I'm going to be talking to Alex today about how the cold chain fared during the pandemic, uh, what that experience taught drug, drug, drug distributors, and maybe a little bit about how we're going to accomplish that that last piece of the uh, vaccine distribution efforts to the rest of the world. Um, so Alex, thanks so much for joining me for the event today. I really appreciate it. Um, I want to start out by asking as, asking about the cold sort of how the cold chain fared because I remember I had some conversations in the fall of 2020 with some logistics providers. Uh, and they were pretty worried about how the cold chain was going to hold up uh, when it came to vaccine distribution. They were worried about the capacity. Um, but then once the vaccine distribution started rolling out, it seems like I've, I've heard less about that now that it's actually happening. Um, so I guess like how, you know, why, why didn't we hear more, more about that while that was happening? And then I guess uh, going forward with, you know, as we continue to distribute the vaccine to other countries, um, with, are, are there capacity concerns with with the rest of the vaccine rollout? Yeah, no, good good question because uh, yeah, it, it was certainly very interesting to see cold chain and the supply chain um, discussed and become a topic of, of conversation uh, broadly across the the news and, and current affairs. But as you say, it didn't turn out to be quite the issue um, that uh, the the industry to some extent uh, uh, was concerned about, and indeed, you know, broader. Coverage would suggest that there, there was that concern. What it comes down to is pharma companies and logistics providers like uh, Wilcur, we've made a lot of investments um, pre-pandemic in order to serve the cold chain. So actually, a lot of what was uh, asked of the uh, supply chain during the vaccine distribution was business as usual, for example, shipping at minus 80 um, or, or two to eight. What differed though, mm -hmm was the scale and the speed. Um, I was talking with one uh, pharma company who was uh, thinking through the challenges around this time last year of distributing a vaccine that had not yet had approval and for whom uh, they did not know who their customers would be. And even more challenging, did not know if their customers would be uh, a number of uh, centralized locations in any given country or whether or not they would be making deliveries to every potential vaccine um, uh, vaccine distribution setting uh, overall. So you, you potentially go from uh, distributing to five or so uh, locations in, in a uh, country to 5,000. And those are very different, uh, again, challenges that had to be planned for with a lot of uncertainty and ambiguity uh, uh, as well. I think the reason, as well as the fact that, you know, the day-to-day -day of moving at minus 80 is something that is well practiced by 
distributors and logistics providers. There was also a lot of collaboration uh, across government agencies, pharma manufacturers and supply chain uh, partners to kind of build up something that was uh, rigorous but, but flexible and, and could meet the needs of, uh, uh, of, of the, the reality of distribution um, to regions around the world. I think something to bear in mind is that once a shipment leaves a cold storage facility, you also need the packaging to enable um, everyone in the supply chain to maintain a specified temperature range. You get it for days, ideally 10 days or, or, or more to ensure the vaccines can reach the broadest um, um, patient population. Some examples I think are, are pretty interesting is, uh, you know, in um, Norway, for example, where temperatures often uh, get into, uh, um, you know, well into the negative Celsius range uh, during mm -hmm. the winter months. We've been supporting with distribution of, of vaccines in Norway using a custom-built active container PharmaCube to maintain, in that case, um, a temperature range of, of two to eight degrees. So you, you need to kind of make sure you've got the right packaging type for the environment in which you're going to be uh, distributing as, as well. But again, that's, that comes from the investments that logistics partners have made um, over the years um, in their supply chains. I think the, the other reason it was particularly calling out is the speed of, uh, of with which you know regulators and others have, have moved is that uh, the widespread distribution of ultra frozen uh, vaccines um, increasingly became distribution once those vaccine doses had soared, and that that really relieved the pressure on ultra cold, cold storage um, and indeed on on uh, on parts of the supply chain that perhaps weren't so uh, comfortable or experienced in dealing with minus uh, 80 shipments. So I think to summarize, it was a, a mix of kind of investments that had been made that, that meant that when this test came, um, you know, the capabilities were fundamentally there, but also quite a lot of collaboration in order to uh, um, make it work. And as you rightly say, um, you know, we're we're a long way into this vaccine distribution program in a number of key markets, but we've got to vaccinate the world. And some of those supply chain challenges will, will get, um, you know, perhaps more challenging as we go to uh, different geographies. But fundamentally, again, um, what's got us through this first wave of distribution will be will get us through uh, distribution to reach uh, uh, the entire global population. Yeah. So a couple of things that I, I thought were interesting there. I, I think you know a lot of people were paying attention to last time this year, you know the the the, the development of the actual vaccines. Um, but like you were saying, it's really interesting to think about the fact that the distributors had to start developing plans for how they're going to get these vaccines out to to where they need to be without really knowing, you know, what is this vaccine going to be like? What are going to what are the temperature requirements going to be? What's the packaging going to be? Where are they going to need to go? And so it's it's you know sort of the the having to sort of make some educated guesses about about what that's going to be before it happened. I feel like was was one of the really big challenges. Um, and it seems like uh, you know now now it's nice that we have a little more information about you know, what the temperature ranges are, how what the packaging is. Um, and so distribution efforts, you know, going into countries that have low vaccination rates, there's at least that you know at least logistics providers have have more information about um, about what's required there. Um, so, so that definitely seems like a good thing. But but I feel like that's a good message. You know, my takeaway there is that the tech. You know, that day to day. You know, I think when you hear when I when I hear something like you know you got to transport this at negative eighty degrees, that sounds crazy. That sounds like whoa, that's that's a big deal. But you're saying you know that's day to day. It's really it's just the scale and the speed. Those those were were the, the big pieces. Um, 
and so I'm interested to hear what you have to say about how about this because I'm really interested to know. You know, I think the pandemic has changed a whole lot of things. You know, there was the way we did things before the pandemic happened, highlighted some, some ways we could do it better, and now we're going to go forward and do it differently. You know, I feel like that that's happened in so many different areas. But I'm wondering about the cold chain because you mentioned, you know, this is for pharmaceuticals, this is day to day, like this is normal. This is the way you, you normally do things. So, I mean, do you think the pandemic changes the way that the pharmaceutical industry is going to approach the cold chain or use the cold chain? Like, has anything changed there, or is it essentially, you know, it just was a really big challenge, and and, and the cold chain has sort of stood up and, and met that challenge? No, that's a good question. Uh, there's, there's no doubt in my mind actually that the cold chain will will feel different after. Um, the pandemic or indeed already feels different. There's a number of things. There's, uh, there's been quite a lot of upskilling in the industry. So uh, um, while I, I talked about it as being business as usual, it certainly is business as usual for World Courier, but a lot of other um, parts of logistics supply chain for whom this was new who have upskilled and are, you know, frankly, now capable of, of, uh, of working in the, these temperature ranges. So I think for pharma companies, it's expanded the range of, uh, of, uh, of potential partners uh, in, in the space. I also think what became really clear was that the value of the cold chain was such that it requires being taken account of early. And actually, let's be clear, it was being taken account of early because the kind of conversations uh, that uh, became perhaps a bit more public in, say, November, December um, and early 2021 were happening in kind of the May june july time period last year but I, I what i do think is that for cold chain professionals particularly those working in pharma companies the importance of their work has never been uh, more, more highly recognized and and so i do think that will change some of the conversations around around cold chain and temperature requirements for for moving products i think will less likely be an afterthought in the in the product development i mean in some cases yeah. you probably don't get much choice if you're moving um uh, self therapy, probably the state of the art today is still going to be cryogenic um, uh, mm. at minus 196 Celsius, and that will remain so. But in other cases, you may have uh, optionality, uh, and that might drive you to make a, a different set of decisions in order to make um, distribution through uh, the supply chain um, potentially easier. And I think the yeah. thing is, none of this is going away, right? Because it, it, this was cold chain pharma products, um, but the share was growing rapidly pre pandemic. When you look at the um, technology that exists within within pharma, where the investment's going, the, the cold chain, the need for cold chain distribution is only going to increase. Uh, with a range of reports, I sometimes see figures of it going as fast as 25% over the next uh, three years or so. So it, I think to summarize, it accelerated some things that are already in, in, in motion, as, as uh, I think we can see in many aspects of our life with, with COVID. Um, but it's also, I think, expanded uh, an appreciation of the cold chain, and that will pay dividends in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it sounds like a, a little bit, uh, in, in some cases, expanding options, logistics providers that weren't so focused on the cold chain before are doing more of that. And, and it sounds like sort of internally, you know, within organizations, just a heightened recognition of, of how the cold chain is important, why that's important, increased focus on that. Um, and so you, that your your answer there is leading right to, to where I wanted to go because I, I wanted to talk about you know we we've we, we heard a lot about the cold chain because of the vaccines but you, but like you mentioned there's there's a lot of other drugs 
out there that that require uh, temperature-controlled environments to to be shipped. And so I guess I, I wanted to ask about just sort of the growth there. Like I I, I guess what's how how much are are you know when you when you look at like drug shipments, like what proportion of drug shipments are going to need cold storage now? And then if you fast forward a little bit into the future, like how much more cold cold transportation are we going to need? And, and what's what's behind that change? Yeah. So if you do, um, if you look at some of the market reports, um, you, you kind of see a pharma cold chain market of around 18 to 20 billion dollars, and then a further 70 or so billion dollars um, for ambient, uncontrolled shipments. So that, that's yeah, a lot of over the counter medicine, and that, that that that's not going away. And there's um, um, you know, there's a lot of medicines that are, um, you know, can be happily shipped, uncontrolled, ambient. Uh, still be effective and um, you know uh, uh, are well suited mm-hmm. to their application. That's not going to going to change. But what what is changing is that as you start seeing more and more biologics and more cell therapies and to some extent gene therapies coming through the clinical pipeline into approved approved products, well then that 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 is what is at core driving um, the uptick in use of uh, of, of cold chain pharma. Delivering, of course, it's notable that um, you know, a number of the vaccines that are approved were either on mRNA or, or mm-hmm. DNA vaccine platforms, and the the, uh, the fragility, if we can term it like that, of, of those molecules was part of what dictated the temperature requirements for them. But of course, they're highly effective, you know, vaccine delivery system, um, and you know, it was a task given to the industry to uh, to manage the cold chain uh, of, of getting those vaccines to, to patients. So. That that that's broadly what's driving it is in in some ways is the, the increasing use of uh, uh, of biologics um, in medicine that is, is driving that that move to cold chain. The yeah. secondary part is simply that though even for products that can happily be shipped on controlled ambient, in order to satisfy increasingly uh, whether it's regulators or or pharma companies' own, own standards and requirements, um, many of those are starting to be shipped. Um, has a controlled temperature uh, at ambient, so 20 degrees plus or minus uh, X amount. So I think that's that's also a trend we're going to see, and that, that's principally driven by by quality. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Both looking at that that drug pipeline and seeing lots of drugs coming down the pipeline that are uh, going to need sort of that more uh, stringent temperature control, but also thinking about quality for for ones that maybe typically you know, could conceivably be shipped at, at ambient. Uh, so we've only got a couple minutes left, but I want to ask really quickly before before we wrap up about uh, the influence of e-commerce on sort of drug distribution. Because I know, you know, I think that's we we've seen over the pandemic, a lot of people are ordering everything you can imagine shipped directly to their house. I'm I'm wondering like what does the future look like for in for for the cold chain in, with pharmaceuticals. Um, in regards to shipping directly to consumers or, or shipping to at least more, you know, a, a wider variety of points of care. And, and I'm thinking specifically sort of like about the, the influence of e-commerce and the influence of having, you know, everything readily available shipped right to your door. I mean, is that is that a future where we're, we're heading to or is or, or is that something that doesn't really make sense for drugs? Well, I think there's elements of that future that, that already exist. I, I think if we kind of think about e-commerce, there's a there's a key element in there which which is convenience, right? And mm. it is appropriate and highly patient centric to think about are there ways that we can make it more convenient um, for 
people to participate in clinical trials. And that has, you know, frankly, has benefits to uh, sponsors. Um, mm -hmm. If you can recruit uh, more people and retain them in your trial, um, if we're able to expand the range of people who are participating in a trial, it leads, frankly, to better data, so we have generally mm -hmm. more balanced uh, from a gender, ethnicity, and other, other key metrics perspective. And so we are seeing a shift of moving clinical trials um, away from you know, traditional sites of care into patients' homes for all of those reasons um, I've outlined. Mm -hmm. And actually, it was accelerated uh, by the pandemic. Um, we've had a well-established direct-to-patient service line uh, for well over a decade. And we saw our volumes uh, for that service line go up to 5x what they were pre-pandemic, due to April, mm -hmm. May 2020. It's reduced a bit uh, now, but what's clear is there has been a shift towards greater use of this home health care model. Now, almost yeah. always what we're doing is we are meeting a nurse at the patient's home, and usually we're taking some form of infusion product, temperature controlled, um, and that enabled those patients to continue in their clinical trial at a time when either stay-at-home orders or healthcare capacity was re you know, redirected towards COVID treatment that meant that their trials wouldn't have otherwise continued. In right. more normal times, as I said, great degree of patient convenience, it expands um, patient access to, to medicine by, by making it more convenient to um, uh, participate in a trial, either for reasons of geography or reasons of scheduling, particularly you know, for kids to make it more possible for them to participate in mm -hmm. a trial around their, around their schooling. And what we've seen as a result of the large uptick is we've seen a lot more you know, investigators, uh, sponsors and regulators, not just in the US, but worldwide, get more comfortable with this model of uh, clinical trial participation. So I think that's going to be a, a key thing that, that's, that's there to stay. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, linking it back to sort of e-commerce and consumerization, I think the thread that links the two is, um, is indeed the, the convenience uh, right. of that model. And as I said, I think it's wholly appropriate, highly patient-centric way, way of thinking about participation in trial. Yeah, well, and it sounds like it's it's really focused on that clinical trial space rather than the larger space, and it, it seems like that's a big part of that is making sure that the drug companies are able to enroll as many people as possible and get the best data possible. But that's all just relying on bringing that cold chain all the way to a patient's home, which is uh, you know just it just extends it a little bit further than than we'd seen previously. Um, yeah. Well, great, Alex. Th those are the main questions I had for you today. So I really appreciated you joining me on the on the on the for the event today. Um, it's great to talk to you and hear your perspective. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Great to chat. All right. Thanks everybody for watching the event.